Welcome to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast, a ministry of Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We do everything we do because we believe life with Jesus is better. If you like what you hear, we'd love to have you swing by and join us for worship. We meet on Sundays at 10 a.m. and have other groups and ministries on various days of the week. You can learn more by going to wakeparkchurch.org. Our scripture reading today is found on page 667 of your Pew Bible. It's from the book of Matthew, chapter 11, verses 25 through 30. At that time, Jesus said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and learned and revealed them to little children. Yes, Father, for this was your good pleasure. All things have been committed to me by my Father. No one knows the Son except the Father, and no one knows the Father except the Son and those to whom the Son chooses to reveal him. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Well, good morning. This week was kind of a, uh, we had kind of a crazy thing happen. Don't worry, everyone is okay. Uh, now, that's going to be a bad segue into this. <laughs> it's, it's really not as serious as it sounds. The youth went, up to, or went down to the camp for uh, the youth retreat. They left on Friday afternoon. Now, the van, and we have this uh, great van, uh, van, like a 2019 Ford Transit, beautiful thing. We don't use it that much, actually. And during the winter, you know, especially when it snows, when we don't use it a lot, then we have to dig it out. And so I made an appointment with Than, our, our youth leader, to go and dig out the van on Wednesday afternoon. And I got to tell you, it took a while. It's not four-wheel drive. And uh, so it took a while to do that. But we actually had something happen while we were digging it out. I, uh, I got in the van to start it, and because uh, you know, first I wanted to make sure it would start, and it did just fine. And I wanted to turn on the defrosters so it would melt some of the snow that was on top of the van. And I, you know, closed the driver's side door, started it, got back out, walked over to the other side of the van, and there was Than standing there, staring at a broken window. The uh, the passenger side window of the van, the the sliding door. When I closed the door. Uh, shattered. And it wasn't even that cold. And I had, I at first I thought, well, you know, Than had an ice pick and got a little wild with it or something like that. But I just closed the door and the window shattered. And so, of course, you know, we rarely use the van. And now, two days before the youth retreat, when they want to take the van down there, we have to do that. We, ha- we have to uh, use it. And so we had to get it fixed. And uh, so I started calling around. Yeah, I went to the standard. Well, uh, Safe Light, I think, is probably the, the biggest brand of, of that. And they didn't have any appointments available. And I was really hoping that we could get it fixed so they could take it down to the youth retreat. And so finally, I called a place called J&J Auto Glass. You can write that down if you want because this is an advertisement, all right? <laughs> 
I called him, and, uh, and I tell you what, he started to go to work, and it's just a, a guy and his wife, and he's been in the business for a long time, but a couple years ago, he decided to start his own business, and I got to tell you, that guy worked and worked and worked. He called the insurance company, worked with the insurance company. He checked on you know window prices and things like that. He came and got the van brought it to his cousin's garage because it was too cold for the for the glue to stick brought it back realized on the way back that the van you know really it said it only had like 14 more miles before it ran out of gas and so he put gas in it and uh, and I tell you this guy just went above and beyond and uh, and uh, and I just thanked him profusely we he got it fixed on Friday afternoon and they were able to take it down to the youth retreat and, uh, and he said, uh, on Sunday, if you would, just say a prayer for my business and mention me. And uh, if there's anyone else who has any auto glass needs, give me a call. And I will just tell you, thumbs up, I highly recommend him. So there you go, J&J Auto Glass. <laughs> Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy, and my burden is light. These are the words of Jesus in Matthew chapter 11. Does that sound good to you? Sounds good to me. And I think the reason it sounds so good is that in our day, it's so countercultural. I mean, where else do we find a place today that gives us real rest? Even when we look at church ministries, this wouldn't sound very much like Jesus sometimes. You know, if American churches had written this script for Jesus, it would probably sound something more like this. Come to me, all you who are longing to make an impact on the world. All you who desire a successful ministry and a legacy to leave behind. I will give you a job to do, but don't worry. It'll be really important and it'll be fulfilling. Come to me, but be ready to work hard for the kingdom. There will be time to rest in heaven. Now, of course, we do have a creation mandate as human beings to work for the flourishing of the world. So there is something to do in the world. We do have something to accomplish. But the problem is, is that oftentimes when we're trying to accomplish it, we do it at the pace of the world rather than at the pace of Jesus. And the problem is that it's taking its toll on us. And of course, we could come up with all kinds of other examples of how, you know, these scripts might get into our head of Jesus saying other things to us. In fact, I asked Pastor Abby this week to, to summarize the pressures that parents face in our world today. And that inner voice might sound something like this. Come to me, all you who are longing for successful kids. All you who desire kids who obey every instruction and stay out of trouble. Honor roll kids whose accomplishments are admired, kids who are responsible and kind, healthy and free from struggle. Come to me with your extra large coffee and calendar, and I'll show you how to cram in tutoring sessions, sports practices, music lessons, daddy-daughter dates, summer camps, and extracurricular activities to make your kids turn out exactly as you want them to be. You may feel frantic and frazzled, but you'll receive the pride of perfect kids and the praise of your peers. Now, I'm sure you could come up with your own version of this very poll, but the point is, is that how we live today, and I think it's true both inside and sometimes outside the church, doesn't lend itself to accepting Jesus's 
invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. We run from one thing to another. We sign our kids up for every activity because busier is always better. And we wear busyness like a badge of honor. In fact, when you ask someone how they're doing, their answer is likely to be, I'm busy. Sometimes we even ask people, you know, we we cut them off and we ask them, we say, so are you keeping busy these days? (laughs) We don't ask, are you prioritizing your time wisely? Or are you getting enough rest these days? Or do you have enough space in your life for God? And I know these aren't really small talk questions, so I don't necessarily expect you to ask them to strangers and things like that, but you get the idea. How is it that one of our go-to greetings in life is, are you keeping yourself busy as if that in itself was a good thing? It's not. In fact, oftentimes the opposite is true. Our obsession with achievement and striving and busyness has brought us a lot of material wealth, but at what cost? In fact, we're so used to being busy that even when we don't have anything to do, we feel like we should be doing something. There's actually a term for what happens to us when we live in an environment like this. It's a term called hurry sickness. You can look it up. It's defined as a malaise in which a person feels chronically short of time and so tends to perform every task faster and to get flustered when encountering any kind of delay. Things like hurry and its first cousin distraction conspire to keep our mind racing. And as the Catholic writer Ronald Rollheiser said, we for every kind of reason, good and bad, are distracting ourselves into spiritual oblivion. It's not that we have anything against God or depth and the spirit. We would like these. It's just that we are habitually too preoccupied to have any of these show up on our radar. Another author named Kirk Byron Jones came up with a list of, a question, list of questions to assess whether you have hurry sickness. All right, so let's take this quiz together. Number one, you're behind a driver who has not noticed that the light has turned green. I know, the hair is standing up on the back of your neck right now, isn't it? Okay, probably because he's on his phone. Right? How do you respond? A, give them a moment to notice. B, blow your horn immediately. C, blow your horn and express your irritation verbally. All right? I won't, you won't have to answer out loud. <laughs> Number two, you're in a slow-moving grocery line with time to spare. What are you most likely to do? A, engage in conversation with someone else. I, I, believe, I believe that, Mark. Yeah, yeah. Don, that's you too, isn't it? Yeah, okay. Look repeatedly at the person at the register to see how fast things are going. C, become irritated. Or D, just don't go to the checkout, just go to the self-check, right? How many of you you do that? Yeah, that's... mm -hmm. Three, which word best describes your emotional state at the end of an average day? Contented, fatigued, or stressed? Four, when was the last time you paid serious attention to a child? Today, within the last few days, I can't remember. Five, or if it's a child that you know, how long did you play with them before you found an excuse to move on to something else? Five minutes, 15 minutes, or I just avoid playing with children. <laughs> I think that was my question, actually. That wasn't Kirk, but you, can, you don't, blame, can't, don't blame Kirk Byron Jones for that. But that was also a moment of self-reflection there. 
How much time during the day do you devote to prayer, pondering, meditation, and or just taking it easy? A, at least an hour. Two, at least a half an hour. Three, less than a half an hour. And seven, how often do you move fast when you don't need to? A, never. B, sometimes. Three, I wish you'd just get this sermon over so I can get on with my day. All right. Now, I, I don't think there's any of us who are, are shocked at this assessment of the world. I mean, we live in this society. You probably won't disagree. And yet, we continue to get caught up in it, even as Christians who have heard the plea from Jesus many times, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. But if we know our relationships are suffering, our relationship with God and with other people, then why do we keep running. Well, again, Kirk Byron Jones in that same book, Addicted to Hurry, uh, has some reasons that he comes up with. Why do we run? And of course, not all of them are bad things. For instance, the first one he says is we run out of enthusiasm. You know, when we're excited about something, we just can't wait. I love that when I walk into a room and my grandkids are in there, they yell, Grandpa, and they don't walk, they don't saunter, they come running and give me a hug. That's great. I hope they never stop that, but I have a feeling by the time they're teenagers, that'll, that'll probably end, but a grandpa can only hope. But when you have something that you're really looking forward to, a lot of times if you're doing something that feels like a drudgery, you'll just want to get through it so you can get on to the next thing. So a lot of times we hurry because we're excited. We run out of enthusiasm. Or we might run in order to get things done. Now, some people, and maybe this is you, you can raise your hand. Do you really like it when you can check items off a to-do list? How many of you, that just gives you life? Yeah, absolutely. I can sometimes be like that too. I understand that, right? Uh, you can sit down at the end of the day and you have this sense of accomplishment, you know, that, that, you, that you did something. And some people are wired this way. Some of you learn it from your family. But some people actually do it as a means of distraction, unwittingly even, to avoid relationships or to avoid having to deal with your thoughts, just sitting down and doing nothing. He says, we also run to please people, or I might say we run to impress people. You see, it's easy for us to absorb the priorities of the world. We want to accumulate, and to accumulate, we have to be efficient and productive, and to be productive, we need to hurry. We want to be in the middle of everything, and we want to post it on Instagram so others can see that we are living our best life. And sometimes we run just because, well, just because we don't know how to stop. We don't know why we keep putting ourselves through this month after month and year after year, but the answer to the question, why we do it, is simply because we have absorbed the habit from our society. Because busyness is the water that we swim in. Okay, here's how Jones says it. He says, we do reach a point where destructive behavior seems to exercise an unquestioned power over us, so much so that we feel powerless in its grasp. This is the bind of deep addiction. And there are a lot of people in our society who are addicted to hurry. Now, there are some people who might say, well... All of this busy society has made us very financially prosperous as a nation. It's given us a lot of really good thing. It's due to the old, good old Protestant work ethic, right? And there's some truth to that. You know, if you work hard to accomplish something, there is a lot of things that you can accomplish. But the question is always whether we're accomplishing the most important things. 
You see, while busyness can accomplish a lot, it also has some pretty devastating side effects. Let me mention two. The first one is superficiality. See, the environment that we live in is how you could des- what you could describe as a mile wide and an inch deep. We value appearance over substance. We have a lot of knowledge but lack wisdom. We can say convincing things in 140 characters but never really understand each other. We're really good at life hacks but not very good at life transformation. We have a hard time thinking deeply, reading deeply, or praying deeply, and it leaves a huge void in our spiritual maturity because depth comes slowly. But probably the most serious side effect of hurry is the inability to love well. John Ortberg writes this. He says, love takes time, and time is the one thing that hurried people don't have. So when you're hurried and distracted, when you're always off to the next thing, what happens? Oftentimes, the first thing to go is faithfulness, dependability, and listening. They just go by the wayside. And we think there's no way out. We think that this is just normal, but it's not normal. So, if hurry keeps us shallow and prevents us from loving both God and other people, then how do we change the script? Well, that's where soul training comes in, and I hope you have your uh, soul training book here, uh, and you're a a part of a small group, uh, because we're going to practice some things this week, or actually really just one thing this week, to try to free ourselves from this addiction to hurry. While there are a few practices that you can keep in mind, there's actually just sort of one uh, overall heading that I would describe Uh, that we're going to do here, and it is what we call slowing. To slow is to learn to cultivate a slower pace of life and a less distracted mind. That's what we're talking about. And the purpose is not just to improve our mental health or reduce stress, although it could have that impact. The space, uh, the purpose is actually to create the space and the capacity, so both in our schedule and in our minds, in our soul, to walk with Jesus day by day. The Japanese theologian Kasuke Koyama, in his book, Three Mile an Hour God, wrote this, God walks slowly because he is love. If he is not love, he would have gone much faster. Love has its speed. It is an inner speed. It is a spiritual speed. It is a different kind of speed from the technological speed to which we are accustomed. It is slow, yet it is Lord over all other speeds since it is the speed of love. Ah, that sounds refreshing too. Sounds a little bit like a God who says, come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest for your soul. All right, now, I see some of you nodding along with what I'm saying here, but I think there are probably many who are thinking at the same time, I just don't see how there's any other way possible. I'm caught up in it, And I don't see how I can do anything different. Well, the truth is that for many people, another way is not possible, at least not right now. And that's why we need to train. You see, it's not possible in the same way that right now it's not possible for many of you to walk up here and play the piano or to get out and run a marathon. You need to train. Eventually, it's possible. And I know it sounds kind of strange that we need to train to slow down, 
But that's exactly what we need to do because right now many of us simply don't have the ability to slow down because for so long we've been training to go fast. Your mind is used to it. Your body is used to it. You crave it. You are a hurry machine. But we must train ourselves to learn to live at the speed of love. Now, remember, it's more than just your intentions Okay, if you just walk away from here today and say, okay, I'm glad you reminded me to be more loving and to slow down, to be more uh, intentional about my priorities, that's what I'm going to do. It just won't work because you have to find a way to free yourself from the things in our society that hold you captive to that kind of a life. Many of us would love to accept Jesus' invitation to come and rest, but the way we have structured our lives and our priorities and trained our affections just will not allow it. And so part of this process is learning to take control. Now, the practice that we have, uh, that, that we're advocating for this week, really has two parts. And the first one, the one that you'll see in your book, I think it's on page 16, uh, is uh, a practice, uh, just, uh, it's, it's calling for a time of solitude this week. Okay? And I'll talk more about practicing solitude in general a little bit later because I think it's something that we ought to be doing uh, quite a bit or, or, or regularly. But this week, the solitude that we want you to practice has a particular purpose. And so this week, I want you to give yourself up to an hour to do this. I know there are some parents who are going, how in the world <laughs> am I ever going to find time to do that? Um, I know. It's hard. Find as much time as you can. Ask for help from someone else. You know, maybe there's someone else that can watch your kids and you can watch theirs or something like that. But try to find the time during this week. And of course, this is something you'll do the time of solitude as an individual, but it'll have to spark a conversation because if you're living in a, in a home with a family, then this is going to impact them, okay? The environment that you live in uh, is going to have to change. It's not just you because you're all going to have to adjust to this kind of pace of life. If you have kids, you know, like I said, you might have to work out a deal, with, uh, with someone else to be able to spend this time, but it's worthwhile. The important thing is not hearing this message, but it's actually doing the practice. Okay, but the purpose of this practice of solitude this week is just to evaluate your schedule. And, and it might be helpful to have a weekly calendar with you, write down all of the commitments that you have and the things that you're involved in. And the purpose of it is not to microanalyze things and, uh, and anything in your life that isn't related, to, related, related directly to growing in Christ should be cut out. That's not really the way it works. But the purpose is to be intentional about how you spend your time paying attention to caring for your soul. And so when you sit down, you'll ask some questions. Questions like, what does your schedule reveal about your priorities? What might you need to cut out to give you margin for things like rest? What might you need to cut out to give you space for cultivating your relationship with God? For cultivating a deeper relationship with people in your life? What might you need to cut out to allow you to be interrupted so that you might have time left over to help people when they experience a need. How does how you spend your time allow you to walk at the pace of Jesus? So these are some questions that you should take time to consider this week and then make a plan. A plan not to do more, but probably for most of you to do less. Okay, And that is the purpose of this week's time of solitude. 
But slowing in general is uh, not just about the pace of life, it's also about the priorities of life. It's not about slowing down just so you can fill up your time with leisure activities, although they're not necessarily wrong, sometimes they can be very restful. But it's aligning your life as an answer to the question, what am I really here for? Or what's really important to God? And so as you're recalibrating things, here are a few ideas. First of all, practice first fruits with your time. Now, during our last series, we talked about this financially, okay? But you can also do first fruits with your time. And what that means is, is that God doesn't, just like God doesn't with money, ask you to give all of your money back to Him, He does just ask us to give our first and our best to him. And so what would it look like if we did that with our time? When we were sitting down and we were making our schedules, if we said, all right, what is the best time that I have? And how can I give that to God? And of course, everything else should be aligned to it as well. But man, if God wants your first and your best, how do you, how do you um, create a schedule that, that does that? And then... Once you, once you get that down, once you say, what is it that feeds my soul, then you can start to fill your schedule in with other things. But I want to warn you, don't fill it up to the brim. Leave margin in your schedule, okay? It's okay to have a night or two or three in a week where you don't have any plans, okay? That's okay. Because this will allow you to be able to rest. And of course, your, all, your schedule always have a habit has a habit of overflowing its banks, and the first thing that usually gets squeezed out is what's most important, caring for your soul, relationship with God, relationship with other people. It's always the first thing to go. Well, practically speaking, two of the best ways to eliminate hurry in your schedule is is two things, okay? First is Sabbath, okay? You've heard this uh, verse before, remember the Sabbath day and keep it holy, Sabbath is one of the gifts that God gave us to help us to slow. He did it way back in the time of the Israelites. Many people don't realize it or maybe forget that keeping the Sabbath is actually one of the Ten Commandments. You know, this is one of the big ten rules of life, keep the Sabbath. And yet oftentimes we treat it as if it's an outdated notion. But the reason it's so important for us is that it ingrains in us that there is more to life than just busyness and production and accumulation. Because practicing Sabbath means at least setting aside at least one day a week. And for most people, it'll be Sunday because this is when we gather together uh, for worship. Uh, and, And really, actually, you set aside that day of the week for two purposes. Number one is to honor God. Okay, It's to recognize that it's God who gives us everything. Set aside to practice gratitude with him. And of course, the second purpose is to rest, to give our mind and our body time to recover. Sabbath is not just a command. It's also a gift to us. And I know that there are some people who will think about this and you'll go, wow, Sabbath really does not feel very much like a gift to me. It feels like a chore because I have so much work to do and I could really use that day when no one else is in the office to get a few things done because, man, if I don't work today, I'll get into the office on Monday and things are really going to be hectic. So it's not so much a gift or some of you think, why can't I eat at Chick-fil-A today? How is that a gift? Right? <laughs> it's a gift to your waistline. There you go. Well, the reason we ask questions like this is that we have been conformed to the patterns of this world. 
And any time our normal gets disrupted, then it's going to be hard for us to do anything different. As A.J. Swoboda says, Christian maturity is never reflected by people who are well-adjusted to a sick society. All right, now, what I'm saying is, is if Sabbath doesn't feel like a gift, the problem is not Sabbath, the problem is the rest of your life. But there's good news. Through practicing Sabbath, God can reshape your life and can change your life from being busy, stressed out, overscheduled, and burdened to being a life of gratitude to God. This is more than just a command. It is a gracious invitation to a different kind of life. Think about it. Your God created the weekend. Enjoy it. Sabbath is a practice, of course, for a specific day, Uh, but I also want to highlight something that if you practice it regularly can actually build your capacity to walk with God, and it's scheduling regular times of solitude. Now, the solitude that we talked about this week had a specific purpose. Your solitude doesn't always have to be filled with that kind of a thing, you know? If you can, you should, pra- you should schedule solitude at various rhythms. You could have a daily time of solitude, just 15 minutes at the beginning of your day or at the end of your day for prayer and reflection just to be alone with God. A longer time monthly, maybe a half a day or or a day if you can get away that long, depending on your season of life, and maybe even a yearly retreat, a weekend perhaps. Because you see, slowing is not just about clearing your schedule, it's about clearing your mind. And for many of us, what prevents us from a deep relationship with God is that we've spent our lives training our brains to be distracted and having to be entertained. You see, some of you are sitting here thinking, well, I don't really have a problem with busyness. You know, it's actually, I'm I'm not really wired that way. You don't fill your schedule with a bunch of activities or you're in a season of life where things are really not that hectic. Or maybe you're just not wired that way. In fact, that's describing me, right? And it's not because I'm some holy and righteous person. It's not even because I've been really intentional about it. It's because my natural magnet doesn't pull me toward busyness. It pulls me towards laziness. And so I suspect that when, you sit, when I sit down and, and do this evaluation this week, there won't be a whole lot that I'll need to cut out of my schedule. But that doesn't let me off the hook. I still need to practice solitude. And here's why. It's because in the last few years, I've realized, actually, that over the course of my 25 years of ministry or so, I have become slowly less capable of reading books for a long time than I used to be. And I found myself, that I found prayer to be a lot harder too. You see, I get distracted very easily. And it didn't used to be that way. I used to be able to sit down for a few hours and, and read a good book or meditate and pray. And now, when I try to do that, every few minutes, my mind says, check your phone. There's someone that needs you. Is there something interesting going on that you're missing? Now, why does my mind do that? Because for years, I trained my brain to crave distraction. Not on purpose. I was just living the way everyone else did. I turned on notifications, I checked my phone, I scrolled through the internet, I clicked on links, and studies are showing that doing that actually trains our brains to be distracted. And it wreaks havoc on our spiritual depth, our prayer life, and our ability to be present with people. I just read this uh, 
this, earlier this week. A writer named Megan Garber shares this story in The Atlantic. She said, a weather, rat, a weather app recently sent me a push notification offering to tell me about interesting storms. I didn't know I needed my storms to be interesting. <laughs> or consider an email I received from TurboTax. It informed me cheerily that we've pulled together this year's best tax moments and created your own personalized tax history. Here was the entertainment imperative at its most absurd. Even my Form 1040 comes with a highlight reel. (laughs) She goes on to say, such examples may seem trivial, harmless, brands being brands, but each invitation to be entertained reinforces an impulse to seek diversion whenever possible, to avoid tedium at all costs, to privilege the dramatized version of events over the actual one. Does that sound familiar to you? That's the bad news. The good news is that if we can train our brains to live that way, then we can also retrain our brains to live another way. How do we do that? Well, the first thing is stop doing that stuff. Pretty, Pretty simple, right? Don't have your phone with you or on all the time. Turn off notifications. Do one thing at a time rather than multitasking all the time. Be intentional about being present in the moment when you are with people. And when you do that, just the practice of concentrating on one thing can actually improve your prayer life and your ability to read scripture or devotional reading for longer periods of time. That kind of retraining can increase your capacity for spiritual depth. But also, even aside from that, setting aside regular times of solitude can also break that tendency in us. Solitude simply means being away from people, away from the demands of life, away from technology, and alone with God. And this is a pattern that Jesus followed. When Jesus started his ministry, he spent 40 days in solitude in the wilderness for fasting and prayer. Whenever he was involved in a a particularly intense time of ministry, and sometimes even when it wasn't so intense, he would withdraw to a lonely place to be with God. When he went back to Jerusalem at the end of his life, before he was arrested, he withdrew to the Garden of Gethsemane to be with his father. And he did it over and over and over in his life. And he taught his disciples to do the same. In Mark chapter 6, after Jesus sent out his disciples to do ministry, they came back and they reported all of these great things that were happening. We healed people and we cast out demons and all of that. And instead of Jesus saying, great, you guys are on a roll, now get back out there and keep doing it. Here's what Mark says he did. Then, because so many people were coming and going that they did not even have a chance to eat, Jesus said to them, come with me by yourselves to a quiet place and get some rest. And he did that regularly. You see, if Jesus himself needed solitude in a world that, is far, that was far less busy than ours is today, then how much more do we need it? John Ortberg says, solitude is the one place where we can gain freedom from the forces of society that will otherwise relentlessly mold us. A lot of people ask the question, well, what do you do during solitude? I just have a very simple answer for you. Nothing. Does that sound good? I mean, it sounds good initially, but then when you think about 
going somewhere and doing nothing. It's kind of a daunting thing, right? I mean, you can bring a Bible if you want, and you can read some scripture um, and all that. You can meditate on a psalm, but you don't have to have an agenda. All you have to do is just be there, be silent, have a conversation with God, turn your thoughts toward Him, and listen, and maybe He might even speak to you. And for a lot of people, because we're so used to being busy, it'll feel like a waste of time. You may not even come away with any great insights from the Holy Spirit, but just the practice of being with God without any of what Henry Nouwen calls our scaffolding, those things that prop us up. Just being alone with God can renew our soul even in ways that we can't articulate. In solitude, I lay myself before God and allow Him to do His healing work on my soul. And if... The greatest thing that I can accomplish in life is an intimate connection with God. Then letting go of all that hinders that is the most important thing I can do. God, we thank you for your invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest for your soul. And I have to admit, That oftentimes sounds really good. And I can imagine for people whose lives feel hurried and hectic and stressed out and shallow and unloving, it's a real breath of fresh air. And so God, I pray for the individuals, of course, in this congregation, that we would be people who live at the speed of love, that we walk at the speed of Jesus. And God, as we do that, would you allow us to be able to see you more clearly, to be able to sense you more deeply, to be able to accept that invitation to come and to rest. And God, I I pray also for our church and for those of us who are leading, who are making decisions, that we would not fall into the trap of creating a a busy church environment that's constantly calling people to go, 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 this activity and that. But that we would be able to have a church community and a structure and a plan for ministry that allows for spiritual depth, that encourages us to to get out and to work for the flourishing of the world and to share Jesus and to do the things that you've called us to do, but not to do so with empty cups. That we would allow the time to be able to rest in you, that you will fill us up as we seek to pour ourselves out. God, we thank you for this time, and I I pray especially for this week as we practice uh, some things that are kind of difficult for us, things that are going to feel kind of foreign. I pray for the prayer times, for the times of solitude that people are going to have. I pray that you would speak, that they would come away with, with insights about how, not just how they can, how they have been spending their time, but how they can spend their time to be able to care for their soul. So God, would you speak to us and change us? We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.
You've been listening to the Wake Park Church Sermon Podcast from Wake Park Church in Northeast Minneapolis. We hope this week's sermon helped you learn to know and love Jesus more and serve Him in your unique place in the world. If you have feedback or questions, get in touch with us by emailing podcast at wakeparkchurch.org.